Well, um, today, the lesson that I, I want to um, use, is I think it's been particularly helpful for people who have grown up in a different church background, whether it was Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, and to better understand the history of that particular church or denomination compared with the history of this church and hopefully fill in some of the blanks and make some connections along the way. And so for the next 30 minutes or so, I want to cover 2,000 years of church history in 30 minutes. Are you ready for that? So we're going to have to buckle up and really roll. And what I want to do this morning is create kind of a human visual timeline of the church uh, here on stage using some members of your church here uh, who have volunteered uh, and are going to come up here and represent uh, several different key characters uh, from church history. It's, it's kind of like that movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Remember their final exam when they had to bring up all the kids? It's kind of, kind, of, kind of be like that. But first, before we get into that, uh, I want to set this up by looking uh, in Scripture at a somewhat familiar passage from Matthew chapter 16. It starts in verse 13. Jesus is with his disciples, and he asked, so who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, who would have been raised from the dead at this point. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Uh, but then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus wants to know if his disciples are getting it, uh, who he really is. And so Simon Peter pipes up and he answers, you are the Messiah which means the Christ, the, the one that was promised in the Old Testament. And uh, he says, you're the son of the living God. And this is what we call the good confession that Peter made that day. And so Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I will call, and, and I tell you that you are Peter. And so this is a nickname that Jesus gives Simon on this day. And it comes from the Greek word petros, which means rock, like the size of maybe a baseball or a softball. And then he says, on this rock, Petra, it's a similar word, but it means a boulder, a big boulder, maybe the size of this stage. And he says, I will build my church on this boulder, the, what you just said. And I'm going to build my church on it, and the gates of hell are not going to overcome it. And I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is telling Peter that based on the statement that he made, that he is going to build the church, and then he's going to give you, Peter, the keys. You're going to open the kingdom of heaven for all of mankind. And Peter does this just 50 days after Jesus' death, uh, when he preached the first sermon that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And so to begin, what we're going to do, I need uh, Peter to come up. Where we got Peter? Peter, if you'll stand right here. Apostle Peter. Looks kind of like an Apostle Peter there. And uh, will you welcome the stage, the Apostle Peter? There you go. All right. Thank you very much. We're going to welcome all of them in that way. And you may not uh, know this, but one chapter prior in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the day uh, that the Holy Spirit would come. And on the day of Pentecost, penta means 50. And so 50 days after the Passover, uh, the, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. So now 50 days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on them in a very powerful way. And the disciples are speaking in tongues, they're speaking in languages they had never studied before. And they go out into the temple courts where tens of thousands of people had gathered for a big Jewish festival called Pentecost. And the disciples start preaching to them just seven weeks after Jesus had ascended back up into heaven. And so Peter's sermon, his very first sermon, is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And Peter says Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That's the good news. He says, but... You killed the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. That's the bad news. And then he says, but now Jesus is in heaven, 
raised from the dead, and he's calling us to repent. That's the good news. He, raised, he rose again. And so the, the Bible says that the people were convicted. They were like cut to the heart. And they asked Peter, what should we do? What should we do to be saved? And uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, records what Peter replied when they said, what should we do? And so, Peter, do you remember exactly what you said back on the, that day when they said, what should we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. That's right. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're going to be, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Now, Peter, I know this was a long time ago, uh, but do you remember that after you gave that first message, how many people you and all your posse baptized on that day? Yeah. It was a lot. It was 3,000 people were baptized. Can you imagine how long it took to baptize all those people in one day? 3,000 people were baptized on that day. And so uh, it's an amazing story as we read about the grace of God being poured out on the people of Jerusalem. The church was born that day, AD 30. And the kingdom of heaven opened to mankind, and Peter is the one who ushered it in on that day. Now, for about the next 300 years on our, on our timeline here, uh, the church continued to grow, even though it was under a period of intense persecution. And uh, it was under persecution by the Roman government. And the severity of that persecution that they faced would ebb and flow depending on which emperor was in power. But the whole time they were under persecution uh, because they were not in favor with the government. Yet miraculously, the church would continue to grow and prosper. But then a very dramatic moment happened in 313 AD. The church went from being a persecuted religion to a very powerful religion almost overnight. And it was under the leadership of a guy named Constantine. And so would you please welcome to the stage, Constantine. Constantine up. Uh, who would become the emperor of Rome. Now at this point in 313 AD, uh, he, she is not yet quite the emperor of Rome, but uh, she is a general of the Roman army and she's a, actually a faction of the Roman army, and the Roman army is, is uh, under a civil war to see who's going to gain power. And um, close, close to the time that uh, Constantine finally gains ultimate power, the night before a very important battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. We've got a picture of that uh, up here. Uh, Constantine says in his biography that during the night, he saw a vision in the sky while he was trying to sleep before this, this big a battle. And the vision, he said, was of the sun and of the cross. Those were the two things in his vision. Now, Constantine knew a little bit about the Christian God. Christianity was not in favor with the Roman Empire because the Romans said that there were lots of gods, but Christianity said there's only one God. And so the Romans thought that that was intolerant and bigoted. Does that sound familiar? And so... Um, so they didn't like Christianity, but Constantine did know a little bit about this. So when he saw the vision, he said he heard a voice. He said he heard the voice of God in his vision. And so would you welcome to the stage the voice of God right here? All right. There you go. If you'd stand right behind Constantine right there. And, uh, and, and so Constantine says he hears the voice of God say something. And that voice said very loudly, In this sign, conquer. There you go. In this sign, conquer. So Constantine hears the voice of God say, In this sign, conquer. And Constantine took this to mean that he was supposed to go out and conquer in the name of Christ, in the name of the Christian God. And so he put 
the symbol of Christianity on all of his swords and shields and standards. And it kind of looks like this right here. We've got a picture over here. And that doesn't, how does that look like the Christian God? Well, in Greek, it's the first two letters of the name of Christ. All right. Now we would think that would be C-H, right? But actually it's, um, it's the letter X and R, Chi and Rho. All right. It looks like X and R, but it's actually Chi and Rho in the Greek letters, Christ. Everybody got that? All right. So the, le- the letters X and R, and he puts these on his banners and shields and they went out and they started winning all the battles in the name of Christ. And so when he eventually did become emperor, not too long away, Constantine made Christianity the state religion. And so Christianity goes from being a very persecuted religion to being a, a, a powerful religion, basically overnight. And so the good thing about this is that now everyone is hearing about Christ because the emperor is promoting it. And it's a whole lot easier to spread the gospel when you aren't getting shot at when you preach. All right, that makes it really easy. But when there is no persecution, the gospel can certainly spread more easily. But the bad news was, is that it really waters down the level of holiness and conviction in the church. Everybody's basically going to church because you have to. It's the state religion. It's expected. In many ways, by law, you have to be a Christian. And so everybody's going to be a Christian, whether they want to or not. And as a result, over the next few hundred years in our timeline, the church devolves into a very powerful but political entity. And this created massive corruption in the church. The apex of this power came in 800 AD. uh, And so we need to welcome to the church or welcome to the stage, Pope Leo III. So we've got Pope Leo III. Come on, welcome him to the stage, please. He's going to stand right here. All right. There you go, Pope. I shouldn't be in front of the Pope, should I? He should be right there. All right. So Leo was a coronated Pope on 795 AD. You say, wait a minute, where'd we get the Popes, right? And so let's go back in this timeline to the early part of the church. And every church was basically autonomous and led by a group of elders or bishops, basically the same word, elder and bishops. And so these bishops from the very beginning of the church would lead the church. And you could see how over time, uh, the guy who did most of the preaching or teaching would get the, the title as the elder or the bishop. And every town typically had just only one church. And so he would be the elder or the bishop of almost really the whole town. And then they started going multi-site. Those uh, churches in one more major town would start planting churches out in the villages. And you can see now that the bishop is starting to oversee several churches. And you can see how organization and hierarchy began in the church. And you come to the point in history where you have the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, you know, the word Catholic just means universal. It's like the one church is what it means. Now, up to this point, there was only one church. And so this only church in town, in every town, is the Catholic church, the one church. And now at this time, Rome was the political capital of the time. And so you can imagine how powerful the bishop was of the church in Rome, because it was the biggest town city in, in, in the area. And so he naturally became very powerful. And he began to be called, even from very early times, the bishop among bishops. He wasn't yet the pope, but about this time, around 500, so this is 800, 300, right in the middle here, about 500 AD, we have the fall of the Roman Empire after 500 years. And um, this creates a very strange period in world history. There's not a whole lot of political structure in the West. David talked about this when every king had his own little kingdom, just his little town or his county. He was king of the county. 
And, uh, and so you've got little fiefdoms and every town kind of has its own kingdom. And there isn't very much governmental structure at large. And oftentimes the church was really the only organized entity in a town. People would look to the church and obviously then to the bishop of that church for any kind of civic leadership. And if you lived in a town and there was an army coming to attack your town, you would often ask the bishop to gather the local ar army, kind of like the local fire department, uh, volunteer fire department. You would ask for the bishop or the preacher of the town to defend your city, to gather everybody. And he was the only guy in town with any official political power. And so you can see how powerful the bishops were becoming. And so the bishop of Rome about this time starts calling himself Pope or Father. It means Papa. And so he takes on this title as head of the church. And everyone is looking to the Bishop of Rome for leadership anyway. And so he becomes a very powerful person. So now fast forward up here, up to 800 here on our timeline. And in the world history, you understand that the Muslims are beginning to approach from the West. The Muslims in the East are approaching uh, one country after another from the East towards the West. Do you remember about 10 years ago when ISIS uh, was uh, beginning to really take over a lot of territory in 2014. And we'd watch the, the map on the news about how far ISIS had spread. And you wonder, how, how long is this going to go on? How bad is it going to get? Well, imagine living back then in the West, in 800, maybe in Rome, and you hear that the Muslims are taking over territory and they're closing in one country after another. Now, Islam is about 200 years old. And at this point, when they take over a town, they force everyone in the town to convert to uh, to Islam or die. There's a lot of really tough stuff happening and, and everyone is really pretty afraid. And there's no real organized government in the West to help organize everybody. And there's just these little kingdoms, these little fiefdoms, and everyone says, saying to the church leaders, we've got to do something, what are we gonna do? Well, enter Pope Leo in Italy, all right? And there actually is one other leader that kind of is at the same timeline with Pope Leo. His name is Charlemagne, King of the Franks. So if we could warmly welcome Charlemagne, King of the Franks, to come stand by Pope Leo over here. All right. And uh, Charlemagne was, was beginning to gain some power in France. So Leo starts thinking, maybe there's a way to unite Rome, that's Italy, and France together. And maybe together we could ward off the Muslims who, uh, who are coming and establish the Roman Empire again that had that had died 300 years ago, maybe we can reestablish the Roman Empire like back in the good old days. And so in a very dramatic moment on Christmas Day, on 800 AD, exactly 800 AD on Christmas Day, Charlemagne comes from France to worship in Rome at uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And, um, and with very much fanfare, Charlemagne and his whole entourage arrive and they marched all the way uh, to Rome on Christmas Day. And they, with all this pomp and circumstance, Pope Leo crowns Charlemagne, the emperor of Rome that day. So you need to take off your crown right here. And if you'll kneel right down here, all right, facing forward there, face forward, he'll do it from behind there. And so I don't know exactly how he said it, uh, the exact words, but in essence, uh, Leo said on this day, go ahead. I am Pope. I am the Pope, you are the king, all right? So can you understand the power of the church on this day? You've got the Pope deciding who the emperor is. Uh, you've got the Pope, the church, deciding who the king is. That's a lot of power. And unfortunately, this created a lot more corruption in the church when the church became more political, even more political, so political that they uh, decided who the emperor was. 
And uh, the Holy Roman Empire was begun on this day, 800 AD on Christmas Day. That's power. And so uh, you can stand back up, Charlemagne. Sorry about that. All right. Now, um, unfortunately, this created a whole lot more corruption in the church. And we talk about this weird era uh, now uh, because we refer to it as the Dark Ages. It was a spiritually dark time. And there's a couple of major reasons why. Number one, this political vacuum that that existed around the globe uh, created a power need in their culture. And the church was the only thing that was filling that need. And when the church has all this political power, a lot of evil people gravitated toward leadership, not because of any spiritual reasons, but just because they wanted the power. And, uh, and so you have a lot of really ungodly guys becoming Pope during this era and doing some very ungodly things in the name of the church. And the reason they gravitated toward that leadership was not for any spiritual calling on their life, but because of all the politics. And so can you imagine how horrible the church was when it was all about politics first, not even about spirituality? The other thing that was really going on during this era in time, up to uh, up from 800 on, is uh, biblical illiteracy. Uh, biblical illiteracy was rampant, number one, because the, church, the printing press had not yet been uh, invented by Gutenberg in the 1400s. So we got 600 years before the printing press. And so up to this point, basically every church had one copy of the Bible. It had been written by hand by a scribe, and every church had one copy. And so people in church had no idea what the Bible said, and they had to trust their priest to teach them what the Bible said. And they just had to accept everything he said as fact, and they had no opportunity to read the Bible for themselves and, and, um, and make sure that that was what uh, God said. And so people weren't reading their Bible. And what happened was uh, that, um, that they were getting further and further from the truth. And so this problem reached its apex in 1500 AD, these two dynamics uh, set the stage for much, two, there were two new dynamics that set the stage for much needed reform in the church. And so would you welcome to the stage Martin Luther? All right, this would be Martina, Martina Luther actually, all right? All right, so the two things that happened that set the stage for this was of course the invention of Gutenberg's printing press. And people are now reading the Bible for themselves for the very first time, and they're saying, wait a minute. That's not in the Bible. That, that, that stuff that my preacher's been preaching all these years, that, that's nowhere even close to the Bible. And, uh, and so people are reading the Bible for the first time, and they know that things are not going on in the church according to Scripture. The other dynamic that set the stage for major reform was a certain doctrine that the church introduced during this era that was so far from Scripture that it was obvious that the church needed to be reformed. It was the doctrine of indulgences. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of indulgences? Basically, what this taught was, if you gave the church enough money, you can do whatever you want. If you give the church enough money, you can indulge yourself. You can kind of pay for your sins in advance. And, so, and, uh, in, and one, of the, one of the most common ways was if you paid the church enough money, you could ba- buy, basically buy your relatives out of purgatory. You could buy grandma out of purgatory if you gave enough money. And so... Is it no wonder why all the great cathedrals of Europe were built during this era, during the era of indulgences, because people could pay for their sins and indulge themselves to do whatever they wanted. And there were some good people in the church that said, wait a minute, this is nuts. This is not the way the Bible teaches uh, about faith. And, um, and so this was so far out there that people started saying, we've got to do something about this. And so the most prominent people of these people 
was a Catholic priest, just 33 years old, by the name of Martin Luther. All right there. And uh, so uh, Martin Luther, this Catholic priest, started reading the Bible on his own, and he started seeing all the things that were seriously wrong with the Roman Catholic Church of this era. And he pens a lengthy paper, a manifesto, uh, kind of like Jerry Maguire's manifesto in that movie. You know, they wrote it all out about this is exactly what it's supposed to be. And it turned out to be 95 things he said are wrong with the church. So he had a long list of pet peeves, all right? And he was working for the church, so he, he should know. And so um, he hammers this manifesto to the front door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so Martin Luther, Martina Luther, if you would hold up your hammer, and I want you to say 95 reasons. 95 reasons. All right, there we go. We call it the 95 theses, the 95 reasons why the church needs to reform. Now, it sounds kind of funny that he would nail this to the front door of his church. What's the deal with that? But back in there, there wasn't any marketing to go on. It'd kind of be like taking out a full-page ad in the newspaper or, or buying a, a, a commercial on Super Bowl Sunday, something where everybody could read it. And in that era, the town square was where, where everybody met uh, for all the news. And so if you posted your stuff on the door of the church, which was the gathering place for the town, everybody would read it. And so Luther uh, hammers his 95 theses to the door, and he wanted everyone to read it. And he hoped that this would begin a, a, a reform movement in the Roman Catholic Church. But instead, what happened was, because some powerful but not godly people were in charge of the church, they kicked them out. They excommunicated the priest, uh, and uh, this Roman Catholic priest and his 95 theses were now kicked out of the church. Now, what is a priest supposed to do when he's kicked out of the church when there's only one church in town? Remember, the Catholic Church means the one church. There's only one church in town. So when you get kicked out of your church, you got nowhere to go. And so he starts worshiping privately, basically at home. And after a while, some of his friends start meeting with him. And uh, it forced him to realize that the Church of Christ isn't some enormous hierarchical structure, some big organized religion. The Church of Christ is those people who are truly lifting up the name of Christ, the Son of the living God. And it does look kind of like Peter uh, said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the cornerstone that we sang about. And it doesn't matter what the name on your sign is or what your structure, structure is, the people truly worshiping God, that's the church. And so he, uh, he started his own church, which today we call the Lutheran church, right? And I wonder if anybody in this room grew up with any Lutheran heritage, maybe you or your parents or your grandparents, any, uh, some people over here. Uh, if you did, this is your story. Uh, this is the beginning of your church, the Lutheran church. Now, what happened is this cracked the egg open, all right? Over the next hundred years, many people followed suit, leaving the Catholic church, starting their own church. Some of them were excommunicated like Martin Luther, and some of them just got so sick of the church not reforming that they went and started their own church. And so you have many groups who began during this era from what we now call the Protestant Reformation. The word Protestant just means protest. They're protesting the church. And Reformation, they want to reform the church. And so the Protestant Reformation, where all those people are saying, the, the Catholic church has gone crazy. We've got to try and fix that. And so during this era, many groups were formed. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Episcopalians, they all traced their roots in one way or another back to the Protestant Reformation of this era. Now, the great thing about this is that people are finally caring about the truth. They're getting serious about the truth. They're reading the Bible. They, uh, they care about doctrine. They're trying to get serious about what God says. 
The bad thing is, is now for the very first time in church history, the church has divi- has, is now divided. Throughout this period, from this point all the way back to here, the church has basically been unified all, all along. And now for the first time, it's divided. And it's a very bad time. Uh, in, in fact, uh, during this time, it's so bad that every time you got in an argument with somebody, you would just go start your own church. You get in a doctoral disagreement, that's okay. You just go start your own church or your own denomination. Does that sound familiar? Uh, my favorite example of this is a Presbyterian denomination in Scotland. And it was the Old Light, Antiburger, Seceder Presbyterian Church. All right? And, um, and that's the name of the church. And that's how many times in just a couple hundred years from the 1500s to the 1700s, and just a couple of years, the pres- couple hundred years, the Presbyterian Church had divided many times. The, pres- the Presbyterians had broken off from the Roman Catholic Church during this era. And then the Presbyterians had an argument about who could choose their preacher. And uh, did the denomination get to choose your preacher or did the church choose your preacher? And so the churches that wanted to choose their own preacher, they were called the seceders. And so, and the ones that said, no, the denomination can can keep picking our preachers. Those were the the not seceders. And so um, the seceder Presbyterians, then they eventually got in an argument about whether or not the local town had any say in your church. And so back in Scotland, all the towns were called burgs, like Pittsburgh or Harrisonburg or Harrisburg. You got all these burgs. And so did the town have any say? Because there's really just one town, one church in every town. Should, should the citizens of that town get to pick your preacher? And so you have the, the ones that said, yeah, the town should get a say. They're the burgers. And the ones that said the, church, the town shouldn't have any say. It should just be the church. They're the anti-burgers. So you got the seceder Presbyterians and the anti-burger seceder Presbyterians. And then you got, uh, the, they divided over whether the Westminster Confession uh, is locked in as it originally was stated, or can it evolve over time and we can kind of amend it? And so the ones that said, no, we should leave the Westminster Confession the way it is, kind of like the Constitution. You got people that are const- Constitution, it shouldn't change, and some say the Constitution can't change. And so you've got the old light, or the ones that say you can't change the Westminster Confession, and you got the new light, the ones that said maybe you can. And so you got the old light, Antiburger, Seceder, it's dizzying, isn't it? And this all happened, and it was happening in every uh, church background, that they're having all these splits and, and divisions and factions. And so, um, and so I want to introduce you this morning to a preacher from Scotland who was a preacher in the Old Light, Anti-Burger, Seceder, Presbyterian denomination. And so would you welcome to the stage Thomas Campbell? All right. There you go. Now, the one thing you have to understand about the, uh, the atmosphere of the churches in these days is that they were so serious about the truth that if you didn't agree completely with everything the church taught, um, you were not welcome um, to take communion at that church, that you weren't really welcome to fellowship with that church, even if it was in, within your own denomination, but just the wrong kind of church in your denomination, you were not welcome to fellowship or take communion at that church. And, um, and this fundamentally bothered preacher Thomas Campbell. And in 1798, Thomas accepted a pastorate, a pulpit in a church in Ahori, Ireland. He's from Scotland, but he took a church in Ireland. And, uh, and it's in Ahori, but he also, he lived three miles down the road in Rich Hill, uh, Scotland. And so he started an academy that he taught during the week to, as a side hustle to make, to make the, pay the bills. And, uh, but he would ride his horse three miles and preach in Ahori, Ireland. 
But he started making friends with all the people in the town where he lived and where his academy was. And so his friends were, most of them were part of a Presbyterian church. It's in Scotland, so, or Ireland, but it's, uh, it's Presbyterian church. And they had an evening worship service on Sunday night. And so he would ride his horse and he'd preach in a hoary three miles and then he'd ride back. And on Sunday night, he would worship with the Presbyterians uh, in, in, the, in their evening church. The problem was, is that the kind of Presbyterian church that was in Rich Hill wasn't the exact same kind of Pres. It wasn't an old light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterian church. It was a different kind. And believe it or not, his superiors called him on the carpet for it. They, they said, you're not allowed to worship with Presbyterians that aren't our kind of Presbyterians. And Thomas Campbell thought that was absolutely bananas. It drove him nuts that he couldn't worship with his friends who were just lifting up the name of Jesus. He, thought, he sensed this was not right. And so it led him for a couple of times to try and promote a unity movement all across Ireland and Scotland to unify all of the Presbyterian churches that we could just be one church again and not fragmented in all these different ways. And so, uh, uh, but, but even through these two huge attempts to do that, he was unsuccessful and it started affecting his health. And so he went to his doctor and said, doctor, my health is failing because I'm, I'm so stressed out about the church. What am I going to do? And guess what his prescription was? You need to spend some time in America. Literally, this is what the doctor said. Back then, it's, America is the, the, the prairie, uh, the frontier. It's a slower pace of life. It's fresh air. Uh, you need to go spend some time in America and chill out for a while, and maybe you'll recover. And Thomas said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So he, uh, he came to America and uh, went all the way to the very western edge of America, which at that point was called Pittsburgh. All right, literally. And uh, he gets to Pittsburgh, which is the, the end of the world. And uh, he's, he's there for a while. And, um, and when he got to Pittsburgh, uh, he, for the life of him, he couldn't find any other old light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterians to worship with. And there, now there were other Presbyterians out there on the, the wild west frontier of, of Pittsburgh, but they weren't the right kind of, of Presbyterians, but he didn't care, right? And so he said, let's just all worship together. And, uh, and so he thought this is the way the church ought to be is that we just worship together uh, because we're all looking to lift up the name of Christ. And, uh, and so Tam Thomas Campbell said, this is exactly what he's been looking for his whole life. And so Thomas Campbell's famous line uh, is this, when he realized there are good people, there are Christians in all kinds of churches, the people that love Jesus and what he's done for them. And so Thomas Campbell had this very famous line when he would say, we are not the only Christians. Wouldn't it be great if we could just fellowship across denominational lines with all who boldly lift up the name of Christ? Now, Thomas was really worried because his oldest son, Alexander, was a preacher back in Scotland, and he was an old light Annaberger, Seceder Presbyterian preacher. And he was really worried that his oldest son would get really honked off that he had ditched their denomination. And, uh, and so, but what he did not know was back in Scotland, his oldest son, the preacher, was also reading scripture and becoming convicted that the body of Christ ought to be unified around those who boldly love, boldly proclaim uh, Jesus and lift up scripture. And uh, so, and they were not talking very much. This is in 1798. And so there was not emails or FaceTiming at this time. And so they, they didn't talk very much. And so finally, Alexander comes to America and has a re this reunion with his dad. And through that time, they discover that both of them share these values that unbeknownst to him, Alexander uh, has been, uh, 
adopting the exact same values that he, the father had. And together they feel like God was calling them to lead a movement in America to unify the body of Christ at large. And they end up meeting with another great preacher from this era, which we would call the second great awakening. You remember your history back in high school? For some of us, that was a long time ago. Uh, but that, there was this era in American history, actually in Western Europe and America, called the Second Great Awakening. It's in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And during this era, uh, the body of Christ, uh, there was a great revival that happening. And um, I want to introduce you to one last character. And he is a preacher from the Second Great Awakening. And his name is Barton W. Stone. All right, welcome to the stage, Barton W. Stone. You can go right down here. All right. Barnaby Stone actually was born, oh, we have got everybody squeeze this way, there we go. Barnaby Stone was actually born in Maryland uh, and uh, down south near, and Port Tobacco near uh, Waldorf and, and, and uh, down that way. And then he actually became a preacher in Kentucky. And, um, and Barnaby Stone was a great preacher. He participated in the great camp meeting revivals uh, on the frontier of America, most notably the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky in 1801. And so these revivals were, were absolutely enormous. And one of the things that was great about these was their size. They would see sometimes more than 10,000 people come to one of these revivals, a covered wagon, basically a two-week family camp is what it is. All right, what else you got to do in 1800 in the summertime than go to a two-week family camp? And so tens of thousands of people would come to these revivals. And, uh, and uh, the problem with that was, there's no sound systems in 1801. So how in the world are you going to preach to 10,000 people without a sound system? And so what they would do is they would get all the preachers in the area and they would come and, and they would work on their sermons together and then they would go and preach uh, all over the, the, the revival grounds on a stump, that stumping, they would get on a stump and preach to a couple hundred people. And, then, and so in the morning, they would work on their sermons together. And this was absolutely unheard of in the church at this time. Now, you didn't get along with your own preachers, much less the preachers from a different denomination. So you had Presbyterian preachers and Baptist preachers and Methodist preachers that were collaborating on sermons and then going out in the evening during the camp meeting revival and preaching the sermons that they had worked on together. It was a beautiful picture of the unity of the body of Christ. And uh, so Barton W. Stone said, wouldn't it be wonderful if this is the way it was all the time, not just the two weeks of our revival? if we forgot all our denominational distinctions and we just became Christians. And so he ends up meeting Thomas and his son, Alexander Campbell, and they wanted to, number one, move people back to the Bible, and number two, get back to people being just Christians. And so one of their founding slogans, now it's a continuation, Thomas Campbell would say, we're, we're not the only Christians. And, but Barton W. Stone would say, we are Christians only, he, uh, based only on scripture, so, so let's say that again. We are not the only Christians. We are not, we are not the only Christians. We are Christians only. In other words, there are good Christians in other groups. You don't have to be part of our group to be a Christian or to go to heaven, but we are going to be Christians only. Not Baptists, not Lutherans, not Presbyterians. There, and this is where the idea of being a Christian church came from. So all across the American frontier, um, starting here in our region, churches started to begin to change the name on their sign. And whatever their denominational sign had been, they simply changed it to Christian Church or Church of Christ. And this movement soon to be called the Stone Campbell Movement or the Restoration Movement. And you can actually go to churches out in the country and read their history. 
And they'll say, we were once a Methodist church or a Baptist church, but during the Stone Campbell movement of the early 1800s, we changed our name to be simply called a Christian church or a church of Christ. Now this movement is also called the Restoration Movement because it didn't set out to reform the Catholic church like Martina Luther tried to do here, but instead it tried to go all the way back to the original church and restore what we did, the Restoration Movement, to restore what we, what we see in the first pages of Scripture, the first church in Scripture, rather than reform the Catholic Church. And uh, they said, we want to go back to the book of Acts, do the things the way they did in the New Testament. Let's have independent churches, autonomous, led by elders. Let's say the Bible is going to be our only guide. And we're going to fellowship across denominational lines with any church willing to unashamedly lift up the name of Jesus. So with this little history lesson going from 30 all the way up to 1801, uh, let's go back and have everybody say their line one more time, uh, beginning with Simon Peter, and everybody say your line right across the board here. Here we go. Everybody say their line. All right. Give them a hand. All right. You guys can go have a seat. All right. Let me wrap this up real quickly. If I could place us on the timeline today, Christ, the Church of Christ at Hagerstown would be right here on the timeline. Your church traces its history through the Restoration Movement. Back in 1984, people envisioned around here a church to be started in this area that would be Christian only. People around the country in our movement uh, celebrate what is happening in churches throughout the world today where the goals that Thomas Campbell and Bart W. Stone set out to reach where they're still happening. And churches are going back to the Bible. They're being united across denominational lines based on whether or not you are lifting up the name of Jesus. For example, many of you might come from a different church background or a different church heritage. And in that a denomination, almost all of them have two major factions. There are churches that no longer preach the Bible and don't say much about Jesus. And there are churches in that same denomination that are holding up the name of Christ and are faithfully preaching the word of God. And in those churches that are still preaching the word, you feel more in common with other people who are in different churches that are preaching the word of God than even the ones in your own denomination that don't teach the Bible anymore. And we have come to call this biblical commonality across denominational lines as the evangelical church in America. Because we believe that we are still supposed to do what the Bible tells us to do and to evangelize. And there are people from all kinds of denominations within evangelical churches. And we sing the same worship songs like we sang this morning. We listen to the same preachers on the internet. We attend some of the same conferences, Christian conferences. We visit each other's churches because we believe that God is calling us to be unified and to lift up the name of Christ. So you need to know that you are part of an evangelical Christian church that considers itself a part of the restoration movement. And so I hope today that you'll not only understand your heritage, but you also love what's great about the heritage of this church. Now to end this lesson, I wanna do something that I think really beautifully illustrates the unity that we have in Christ. It's really simple. On the count of three, in just a moment, I want you to call out the denomination you grew up in, or maybe your parents grew up in. And we're gonna say that all together at one time. If you grew up attending Methodist church, you're gonna yell out Methodist. If you grew up Lutheran, say Lutheran. If Presbyterian, say Presbyterian. Baptist, say Baptist. Catholic, say Catholic. If you grew up bouncing around, yell out, bounced around. Uh, all right. If you grew up not going to church, you could just yell out heathen. All right. So uh, 
All right, so uh, on, 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 the, on three, on the count of three, are you ready? One, two, three. That's, uh, that's a long one over there, whatever that is. That's pretty discordant, isn't it? There's not a whole lot of unity in that. Uh, now on the count of three, I want us just to all say the name of Jesus together. All right, one, two, three. Jesus. All right, now for a second time, I want you to just yell it out with all your heart, bold and strong, uh, because of who he is in our life. Ready? Really nice and strong here. One, two, three. Jesus! There we go. And one final time, uh, I want you to say in the name of Jesus with just a prayer, just a whisper, remembering all that he's done for each one of us here in the room. One, two, three, Jesus. Jesus said, if I, if I am lifted up on the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And this is our simple goal, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ so that all people will be drawn to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for using the church, your bride, in spite of all of our failures over all the years. We thank you for all that you've done in every group that we've looked at today, the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, and even in the Christian church. Lord, in all those groups, there are people who truly hold up the truth of your word and lift up the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for them. We pray that you would unite the church today on the truth. the Son of the living God. The gates of hell will not prevail against that very truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.